constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and BigBeacon.org is an independent nonprofit organized in 2012 to help transform higher education, particularly engineering and professional education. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can tweet about the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show at hashtag Big Beacon. And today, I feel extraordinarily blessed in the season of blessings to uh, welcome, to for the first time, Dan Dan Heath, uh, bon vivant and uh, terrific uh, best-selling author. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks so much, Dave. Good to talk to you again. Well, it's great to, great to have you on the show. And we're also uh, joined by my uh, co-author of A Whole New Engineer, uh, Mark Somerville. Uh, welcome back, Mark. Great to be here, Dave. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll catch up with uh, Mark in the second segment. But Dan, um, you're a best-selling author. You've done a lot of interesting things. You've worked as a research and case writer at Harvard Business School. You started a an innovative uh, publishing company called Thinkwell, and and now you're a senior fellow at Duke's uh, Case Center, where you help social entrepreneurs in something called the Change Academy. But let's uh, let's go back to the log cabin or the time machine, which, whichever your preference. And what were some of the in- uh, early influences or influencers that uh, put you on your current path. Yeah, it's been a uh, it's been a career I would characterize as meandering. Uh, so so no great uh, strategy involved here. But but I think one thing that's that's been a theme is is I've always been interested in the power of the great teacher. You know, I've I've always felt like a great teacher can have easily. 10 times, if not 100 times, the influence of, of a median teacher. And so in college, you know, for example, it, I did this weird thing at the start of every semester. I would just go to probably 30 different courses and just pick, uh, you know, whichever courses had the best teachers, you know, so long as they bore some remote resemblance to my, uh, my major uh, trajectory. Um, because I knew that if the teacher was great, that would do so much for my motivation that it would, it would make my learning better, it would make my work easier. Um, later, the company that you mentioned that I started, ThinkWell, was built around nothing more profound than, than this common sense observation, which is everybody's got a favorite professor from college, but nobody has a favorite textbook. Uh, so why shouldn't <clears throat> textbooks be more like great professors? And you know, in, in the era before there really was video on the Internet, we were one of the first people to put videos on the Internet. So think, think the Khan Academy, but about five years before, uh, we would go and find some of the best professors in the country and bottle their courses and then use yeah. those lectures really as a, as a preamble, as preparation for the actual classroom work with the idea of making the classroom time for teachers more interactive. So... Um, so these days, you know, with the books that I've been writing with my brother Chip Switch and Made to Stick and the new book, The Power of Moments, I feel like in a weird way I'm trying to, to live up to some of those observations to try to channel, you know, how do I present these concepts in a way that's going to that's gonna stick with people, that's going to make a difference, 
you know, in my own speaking and training, I'm trying to channel and, and reproduce some of what I've seen from observing these great teachers. And, and so I think that's been a lifelong interest and fascination of mine. Yeah, nice. And, and, uh, and, and now at, uh, at, um, at, at Duke and at Case, what, what's the uh, Change Academy about? The Change Academy is a program designed for social entrepreneurs, so people who are trying to change the world, uh, but trying to do so at scale, you know, using the same entrepreneurial instincts that you might find in Silicon Valley. So think about things like Teach for America mm. or yep. Tom Shoes um, or, you know, uh, Kiva Online. So these are people who really want to scale. They want to grow fast. They may have uh, a, a business model. It, it may be revenue generating. It may even be profit generating. But the main point of the enterprise is not the generation of profit, but to cure some social ill. And so at the Change Academy, what we're trying to do is craft an experience for these leaders nice. that will help them solve some kind of current problem they're facing. Um, we had uh, a charter school come in one time, for instance, that was working on the problem of teacher retention. And what they were finding is their, their teachers were so good at creating positive student outcomes uh, but the cost of that was that the teachers were working these extraordinary hours and just kind of pouring themselves into the work, which was incredibly powerful for the students, but it wasn't sustainable. Right. And so they had this problem of teachers would come in for three or four or five or six years, and then they just couldn't, couldn't handle it anymore and had to go find a more relaxed place to work. Uh, and so that's an example of the kind of issue that we might tackle at the Change Academy. Nice. And yeah, also on the show... No, I'm, go ahead, please. I'm sorry. Well, one, of the, one of the things you mentioned in, in sort of talking about your path is the extent to which it was sort of meandering. And we were interested um, in the whole new engineer and this sort of idea of unleashing experiences, these kinds of key events that happen or these key people you encounter that, that actually give you the courage to, to take a turn on that path and to go your own way. How, what are some of the key experiences or key individuals for you that have actually enabled you to, to follow this really interesting path you followed? Gosh, there, there are so many. Um, one of the first that, that pops up is I had an eighth grade journalism teacher named John Atkinson. I went to uh, some public schools in a suburb of Houston called Clear Lake. They're really, really great schools. And, and what stood out about Mr. Atkinson, I still can't really call him anything but Mr. Atkinson, curiously, even as a 44-year-old, um, he, uh, he turned us loose to create the school paper. And, and this was an era... You know, it sounds like it was 100 years ago, but of course, you know, it was just a couple of short decades where there were no computer publishing uh, platforms in that day. So when you made a newspaper, it was literally gluing pages onto wooden boards to create what were called plates. And if you wanted a headline, you know, picture a headline in a newspaper, today we, you know, created in a word processing program at that era, you literally scrubbed what was called press type, like basically glorified temporary tattoos, you would sort of scratch them off of a page using your fingernail and try to line them up carefully letter by letter. But what he was so brilliant at is, is making us the boss of that experience, giving us mm. enough rope mm. to try things. And if we had new ideas, he would say, go for it. If you're willing to put in the work and do the innovation, go for it. I remember I was on the writing team, but I was interested in photography. And he one day just gave me a camera and a quick lesson. He said, hey, go play around and, and come back and we'll look at the mistakes you made and, and learn from it. He taught me how to develop photos, 
one uh, one day I was hanging around after school because it was the sort of class where you just wanted to hang around after school. Isn't that a good diagnostic of an effective teacher? And uh, it happened that Nolan Ryan, the famous uh, uh, pitcher for the Astros, was coming to the school for some event. And out of the goodness of his heart, Nolan Ryan had agreed to be interviewed. And so my teacher uh, said, hey, you want to go shoot some photos of Nolan Ryan? <laughs> and talk about a thrill for an eighth grader. Uh, so he was the kind of guy who could just, you know, light a fire in you. And, and looking back on that and trying to figure out what exactly he did, I, I think it's a lot of the things you guys talk about, which is, you know, you've got to grant some autonomy. You've got to make space for creativity. Um, you've got to show a tolerance for mistakes because when you let eighth graders have some autonomy, guess what? A lot of times they're going to screw it up. And those things can be learning opportunities too. And, and so I look back on that as just one of the first moments when I really felt like uh, an adult, like someone who had off, uh, ideas and, um, and things to offer the world. And what a gift to get that in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And uh, and those kinds of th- our experiences that those things uh, carry carry with you, and then you build on them. Uh, Dan, you've you've written uh, four books now with your brother Chip, um, made to switch, sti- uh, made to stick, switch, decisive, and now the power of moments. Uh, we're we're fans of all of them, but uh, we're curious which ones the, in some sense, for you personally, the most mind blowing. Where kind of uh, some of the insights you gained in writing the book were beyond anything you thought. Um, they might be. Maybe every author says this, but I think the new book uh, is, is maybe my favorite of the four, uh, The Power of Moments, which is about mm. what is it about particular experiences, particular moments in your life that can really change your trajectory or can really stand above the rest. And, and my brother and I, you know, we've been obsessing about the kinds of moments that fit this profile, you know, ranging from a wedding day to a, uh, an award that you received or uh, a public presentation you made or a game where you hit the winning shot or a, a day when you woke up and you realized, I can't take one more day of this job. or you know, What is it about these experiences that makes us reflect on them years or, or decades later? And what we found was that there were actually some, some visible patterns that distinguish these ideas, that even things that look very different on the surface shared some common architecture and the reason we were so excited about that is if we understand what these moments are made of, it gives us the tools to create more of them. You know, it's like this, this hidden power that we didn't know that we had. And so we wrote the book to basically arm people to create more of these defining moments, as we call them in the book. Dan, I wonder if I could ask you about how the book came about. So you, you've got this sort of insight and this sort of decomposition of, of moments, but What's the what's the backstory? How did it actually? How did you decide that you had to do this project? Well, appropriately enough, the this book actually has a, a defining moment uh, as part of its origin story. So my brother and I, we'd written three books, and we'd never really struggled with what we were going to write next. I think it was just good luck, to be honest. And and so when we finished our third book, which is about decision making, we started thinking about what would come next, and we started several different ideas and. Um, you know, we would spend three months or six months or in one case, nine months, you know, researching ideas and digging in. And then we would decide, mm, I don't think this is worth writing a book about. It's a big commitment, as you guys know. And so we'd kind of just been lost in the wilderness for a few years. 
And in fact, one Christmas, we were at uh, our parents' place in Durham, North Carolina, and we were uh, we kind of uh, escaped from the family celebration and uh, holed up in our dad's office to brainstorm about one of these ideas. And the conversation was just such a drag. We were we were going through the work we had done, and we just weren't that excited about any of it. It felt like some kind of burden that we'd forced upon ourselves. And at some point in that conversation, the phrase defining moments popped out. And I can't really remember how it happened or what the context was, but that phrase just seemed to, to spark something in us. And we spent the next probably two hours just doing this, this crazed brainstorming where we were talking about defining moments stories from politics and and war and business and, and academic research that related to defining moments and stories mm-hmm. from our own lives. And we're just filling up this Microsoft Word document with just link after link after link after association. And we knew immediately that this is what we wanted to write mm-hmm. about. And so we kind of charge out of the office two hours later and go into the living room where our family was sitting. And we say, we've got a new book idea. It's called Defining Moments. And, <laughs> and there was this visible look of relief on their faces because uh, <laughs> apparently all of them hated the old idea but were just too nice to tell us. And so you've started to tell us uh, 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 about the book Wait, what, um, and, and define defining moments. What, and tell, us, tell us more. What, what, how, what's, what's the book's scope? What's it, what's it really about? The, the book in one word is about experience. It's about any time you're trying to create an experience for someone you care about, whether you're a business owner and you're thinking about customers or you're in healthcare and you're thinking about patients or you're a teacher or an administrator thinking about students or, or even a parent thinking about your kids and you're thinking about what will create a better, more memorable, more meaningful experience for them, that's the, uh, the situation that this book was designed to address. And the point that we make in the book is that great experiences hinge on peak moments, on defining moments, and that these moments, furthermore, as I mentioned earlier, tend to have similar elements. And in fact, in the book, we say that there are four elements that recur again and again in these defining moments. Uh, elevation, which is uh, a sense of lifting above the everyday, you know, full of positive emotions. Think about a birthday party or you know, a, a glass of wine with friends and telling funny stories uh, or, you know, a, a basketball game, something that's just completely absorbing of your attention and your efforts. The second is insight. You know, those moments when you realize something that changes the trajectory of your life, a sudden epiphany. They may be positive, they may be negative. The third is pride. So these are moments when we accomplish something maybe we thought we couldn't or other people award us or recognize us for our talents or for our work. And then finally, another element that you see again and again and again in these special moments is an element of connection, that these moments bring us closer to other people, sometimes in personal relationships, sometimes among groups. You know, if you think about a time when you've really been bonded tightly with a group, I can almost promise you it was a time when you you had to do something really hard together. And, yeah. and in you know, the, the crucible of that challenge, these, these bonds were formed that can last a lifetime. And so that's what the book is about. It's, it's trying to teach people, hey, here's how to make a better experience for your students, for your customers, for your patients by understanding the composition of memorable moments. 
That's really interesting. One of the things that we think about a lot is is how to how to conceive of education as experience design, and it sounds like you're really um, thinking about uh, this sort of design of of moments. Um, so I wonder if you, if I can ask you to to speculate for us a little bit about what defining moments might mean in an educational setting or for educators. How do I, as an educator, take advantage of this idea? Well. This is a, you've hit on a, a personal passion of mine, uh, and I think the answer is that there, there's an element of opportunity and an element of tragedy here, because we already know what these peak moments look like. If you think about, if any of your listeners think about, what do you remember from high school? What do you remember from junior high? Like, what's, what's in people's minds right now is um, big basketball games or swim meets or football games, um, performing in the high school musical um, science fair or debate or journalism competitions, um, uh, prom, uh, marching band competitions, marching band practice, choir performances, on and on and on. And if you notice what's distinctive about all these things is they're full of the elements I talked about earlier. They're peak moments. They, they elevate us. They connect us with other people. They provide opportunities for pride and insight. And yet the tragedy of this is everything that I just talked about is something that happens outside the classroom, that same classroom where we spend the vast majority of our time. And by the Amen. way, I, don't, I know you're interested in higher ed, and I don't think the dynamics are much different there. Oh, uh, and so what might it look like to create more peak moments in the classroom? In the book, we talk about a couple of examples, but one of my favorites is, is from a high school in San Mateo, California called Hillsdale High, public high school. And a couple of sophomore teachers had this point in their career where they were just exhausted with the drudgery of, of everyday life as a teacher and, you know, teach and, and test and prepare for the state standardized test and drill. And, and they said, you know what, we want to create an academic moment that's as memorable as prom, which is, which is pretty ambitious when you think about it. Um, and so what they cooked up was called the trial of human nature. I should say these two teachers reflected um, social studies and English, respectively. And so this was engineered to be something that would cross both historical and literary themes. And so the trial of human nature means that the author of the famous book, The Lord of the Flies, William Golding, who in that book paints a pretty bleak picture of human nature. You probably remember there's a bunch of boys who are marooned on an island and, you know, detached from the civilizing instincts of society. They, they quickly revert to a state of savagery. And so the trial is to put William Golding up on charges of libeling human nature with this book. He's guilty of, of libeling our true nature and the prosecution will argue he should go away for that libel, and the defense will say, hey, what if he's right? And so the students are asked to conduct this trial. They'll be the lawyers. They'll be the witnesses, the witnesses being famous literary characters as well as historical figures. So, you know, people ranging from Florence Nightingale to Buddha to Stalin to Hitler to uh, more modern-day figures like Darth Vader and Tupac. Um, and so the witnesses prepare case testimonies based on these witnesses' lives and based on their perspectives of human nature. They conduct the trial in an actual California Superior Courtroom in front of a jury that's made up of administrators and alumni, so there's a real sense of pressure in the air because you're having to, to conduct this in front of you know, people that you respect. 
And I had the chance to see this with my brother last year in about its, let's see, 29th run or thereabouts. And it was just mm. extraordinary. You know, the, the amount of effort that students put into this, it's, it's the same as the senior musical. It's the same as, you know, the big district basketball game. It's the same as, you know, the marching band performance at halftime. It, it took effort. It took preparation. It, it created anxiety. They put in hours after school. And when you see something like that, you realize, you know, and you slap your forehead that we've created an academic life that's devoid of peak moments. And yet, these are exactly the, remote, the moments that students are going to recall years later and exactly the moments that are going to benefit them the most. So let me just pause there and get off my soapbox. It's a great story. No, it's a great story, and and uh, and yeah, uh, and it can well, and, and and both sides that, that what you said uh, that uh, we've created uh, educational system devoid of these peak moments is is exactly right in in our view, and and um, and and this idea that they can um, this idea that um, they can be designed is is one that's. Uh, really interesting from an engineer's perspective, uh, um, and so how and and actually, it's not surprising though to hear you say that, given uh, especially given uh, what's what's in uh, made to stick and switch. Uh, there's a, a sense of design and doing doing things uh, differently in in those two books. Uh, but um, what are some of the keys to uh, designing peak? Uh, peak experience or defining or designing defining moments for people? Yeah, I think what's different is that it's it's a different rhythm. You know, the, the way, if you, if you think of like a stereotypical high school class, it's like the semester is carved up into classes and the classes correspond to elements in a master outline, much of which, I mean, to be fair to teachers, is, is prescribed by the state. And so it's yeah. like you've got you know, 17 uh, factual points to hit in a 45-minute class. And, and so it's like every minute is essentially the same. It's like you're walking this flatland versus the way that most things work in life. If you think about your job, chances are there's some kind of rhythm, right, where you, you go through these periods where you have a big project for, for a customer or for a boss, and you have to spend some time kind of formulating, what are we trying to do here, and, and what resources do we need to tackle this? And then you start to plan, and then you start to execute, and then toward the end, you go through this intense period where you're trying to perfect everything, and the hours are long, and then something happens. There's a product launch, or there's a performance, or there's a, uh, a publication of a research paper, and, and that's the culmination. Uh, but class doesn't look like that. But with peaks, they can look like that. And this is not, you know, some kind of speculative uh, idea. This is happening in a lot of places, just unfortunately yep. all too few. I just visited a place called High Tech High, which mm -hmm. um, is actually a whole district of schools, not just a high school in San Diego. It's a public charter school uh, operated on a lottery model. They've completely done away with exams. What their students are graded on, they call exhibitions, which are, you know, public experiences where they might be demoing anything from some kind of um, uh, robotics to a theater performance to a magazine that they've completely created from scratch, both content and design. 
And they invite members of the public, their parents, neighbors, teachers, to come in and see what they've done. And it's just extraordinary to see, you know, the amount of ownership and autonomy that these kids have taken and, and the, the amount of rope that they were given. It's kind of like that story I was telling about my journalism teacher earlier, except that what if every teacher in your district was like that? That's high-tech high. And I think a lot of parents, you know, because we were raised in, in the factory education system, we feel uncomfortable with that. Well, wait a second. What, what do you do if you don't get a test? And what do you do if you don't have 100 facts that you're supposed to recall uh, but I think the fact is, n- number one, some of the early research on this, which I think is, is appropriate to call uh, deeper learning, that's the Hewlett Foundation's term for it, uh, a lot of the research on deeper learning says not only do you get a lot of things you'd expect from that, like better collaboration, higher levels of motivation and self-efficacy, but, but in some places they actually score even better on the state test, even though they're not teaching to the test, which is just astonishing. Uh, but the other thing that I would point out is I think that this is a, an escape route for our teachers where, um, I mean, we put so much pressure and so much burden on teachers and all the things that they're supposedly uh, required to get across to students. And here's an example where you can have this, this much more human-oriented cycle of work and rest and planning and something that looks much more like the actual world that we live in um, without this need to just kind of show up every day and, and drone on about the next 75 facts. Um, gosh, can you tell I'm, I'm passionate about this? I feel like I could talk about this for three hours. Uh, <laughs> we'd we'd probably love to talk about it with you for three hours, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> you going to go ahead, Mark? Oh, no, I thought, I'm sorry. I oh, you're sorry, waiting. Okay, so, um, no, and, and we couldn't, anyways, we... We feel we feel your passion, and uh, we've just got a few moments uh, left in the the segment. But um, use a couple of terms uh, that seem pretty important. You talk about missed moments, and you talk about breaking the script. What are those? What are those two sticky sticky phrases? Well, let's talk about breaking the script, especially. Um, Breaking the script is, is kind of a principle of experience design or moment design, and what it says is that. One of the elements that creates really memorable moments is when it defies our expectations. So the, the way we're using the term script actually dates back to some uh, cognitive science research from decades ago, and, and it refers to the fact that we all have these mental scripts of how certain experiences will go. You know, if you, if you walk into a restaurant, no matter where it is, and even if you haven't been there before, you know, there's probably going to be someone that greets you and shows you to a table, and then you're given menus, and then someone comes and fulfills your water glass, and then someone comes and takes your order, and all that stuff is kind of baked into your brain. That's the script of how a restaurant works. And the principle here is that if we can learn to break the script in some way, that's a way to make experiences more memorable. So one of my favorite examples is there's a hotel in Los Angeles called the Magic Castle Hotel that is completely ordinary to look at. I mean, I would challenge you to Google it and see some of the photos later and, and uh, to paint a quick picture. It looks like a two-story budget motel painted bright yellow. And yet, it's the number two rated hotel in Los Angeles on TripAdvisor, according to thousands of reviews. It outscores the Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons. 
And a lot of their success comes down to the design of particular moments. Like, to me, the, the most script-breaking moment, if you will, is by the pool in the interior courtyard, there's a cherry red phone mounted on the wall. And if you pick up the phone, someone answers, Popsicle hotline, may I help you? And you can order up cherry or grape or orange popsicles delivered to you right at poolside by someone holding a silver tray wearing white gloves like an English butler, all for free. They have a snack menu where you can get free goodies just by going up to the front desk. And they have a board game menu where you can check out games. And they've got magicians doing tricks in the lobby. And they'll even do your laundry for you on the same day. And so when you start to look at those other aspects of the hotel, you know, despite the fact that it's ordinary to look at, that there's nothing dramatic or grand about the grounds or the amenities the way there might be at the Ritz-Carlton, the fact that they've got these moments that kind of blow your mind, you know, nobody in the world has a popsicle hotline mounted at their hotel. Yeah. And, and what, what a crazy idea that must have sounded like the first time it came out of someone's mouth. Hey, what if we did this? That's breaking the script. And that's the kind of moment that families will recall and, and tell others about for years to come. Yeah. We need to take a, a bit of a, a break, Dan. Um, People want to get and uh, people want to get in touch with you or find out uh, or find out more about your work. Where should they go? They can come visit us at uh, heathbrothers.com. That's Heath like the candy bar and brothers spelled out. Heathbrothers.com and has uh, information about all of our books. Okay, thank thanks, Dan, for being with us, and uh, I'll come back with Mark after after the break. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks a million. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is uh, Big Beacon Radio, and uh, stay with us in the in the next segment. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the application of these ideas and and the other ideas of the Heath Brothers uh, uh, books to uh, higher education transformation. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, 
Back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. The second segment is uh, sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership facilitation to help transform yourself or your educational organization or institution. It's also sponsored by the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And... Uh, I'm back with uh, Mark Summer, Somerville, co-author of A Whole New Engineer. And uh, Mark, uh, you've been on the show a number of times, but uh, maybe bring our listeners up to, to date. Uh, what uh, one, two, or three things have you been up to that uh, our listeners might be interested in? Well, Dave, I've been having a lot of fun this last year. I've been on, I've actually been on sabbatical from Olin, and I've been heavily involved in a uh, big project in Vietnam that's starting a, starting a new university from scratch over there. So it's been a great opportunity to think about a lot of the lessons in a, in a whole new engineer and try to figure out how to make those those work in practice. It's been a pretty exciting uh, time, although I'll tell you the, the sort of flights are, are long. Well, yeah, and um, yeah, the Asian uh, uh, flights can can be challenging, but uh, and to the without uh, breaking any confidences or, or uh, telling secrets out of school, well, what... Uh, Given the things that we've written about together and the things that we that uh, you know you've learned at, at Olin, um, what uh, is there a big takeaway or two from the Vietnam experience that our listeners might be interested in? Oh boy, there are there are a lot of them. I think one of the one of the things I've thought about a lot is, is actually the experience that you write in, about in the book with uh, with Singaporean students and how sort of we have this assumption that students in different parts of the world are, are you know, somehow different, that, that Singaporean students don't answer questions, or similarly that Vietnamese students don't answer questions. And it's been, it's been just so um, exciting to see how unleashed these, these Vietnamese kids are when presented with the opportunity to, to think about what, what an education might look like for them and what the, what the sort of right way is for them to, to be unleashed and pursue the things that they're passionate about. So I think that's, that's been one of the things that's been really exciting to see. Uh, I've certainly um, thought a lot, been thinking a lot about uh, the sort of issues around culture that we talk about in the book and how you can be intentional mm-hmm. about trying to create a culture where you know, faculty frame themselves as coaches and where everyone is sort of collaborating together to try to make the institution work better. So I think those lessons are ones that are, um, are really coming into play in that project. So it's, it's really been a wonderful opportunity to, to think about applying some of these ideas that, that we and you know, other folks have been thinking about for a while, but applying them in this sort of relatively blank slate setting where we can say, okay, when we're going to start this institution and what are the right ways to, to achieve those, those goals. So, yeah, no, that's actually the, you know, those two things seem connected to me. And uh, thinking back to the Singaporean experience, it was, it was actually the showing up as a coach and asking, you know, that, you know, they just, my colleagues, my faculty colleagues uh, in Singapore would just say, well, Dave, you're not in the United States anymore. You know, Singaporean students won't answer your questions. But of course, the question is about about safety. Do they feel safe, and do they feel like they're going to be judged um, as smart or not smart, depending on the answers they give? So you have to ask these open-ended questions where where their reflections are welcome and um, and and not judged. And that whole that whole dimension seems um, important. And and how do we, you know? And so there's this tension between having people learn the right stuff and learn it well and 
um, and not always being judged all the time. Yeah, well, it's been beautiful for me to see how these, you know, I mean, Viet, the, certainly the Vietnamese education system is one that is very much about the yep. right answer and about judgment. And, and so uh, a lot of folks that we talked to in Vietnam were, were skeptical about trying to um, sort of create an education in which students have autonomy. But it was just beautiful to me to see when we, whenever we would interview students, uh, Vietnamese high school students, as soon as they were sort of in a setting where they, where you could sort of take off the the chains a little bit and give them the space to imagine what might be possible. They were so engaged and so energetic and so, so unleashed that it was um, just great to see that, see that happening. Yeah. So we've just, uh, and we've just had this uh, fascinating conversation with Dan about the power of moments. Uh, As you think back on that conversation, what, uh, what kind of insights um, or takeaways strike you about the, about the new book, uh, the, the, the Power of Moments. Yeah, I, I really love the idea, and in part I love the idea because, it, you know, I think we, we talked briefly in the first segment about this sort of idea of education design as experience design, and I think yeah. that, that's a really fruitful way to think about it, and it's particularly, I think, fruitful when you think about experience design to think about what are those sort of defining moments for students within a, within a class. One of the you know, workshops that I've that I've run before is called Win Day One, right? And the sort of idea is that one of the defining moments for students in a class is the first day, when, the first day they show up at the class, you know, because that sets culture. It sort of is, is it a memorable experience? Is it something that has that sense of connection and that sense of elevation? Or is it something that's like, okay, here's the syllabus and we're going to have three exams and so on and so forth. So yeah. I think it's a really useful um, framework to think about. I'm also reminded a bit about... Um, you know, when we ask students to reflect on their experience in a class, you know, one of the things we'll ask them to do is to draw a sort of emotional timeline of the class, right? And, you could, and it's amazing to see the peaks and valleys and how much students can tell you exactly what was happening at that peak or at that valley versus their inability to sort of tell you what was happening in the kind of middle flat region. So it really rings true for me. Yeah, and I'm thinking back to um, like the early, you know, when, we were fairly intentional in the early days of iFoundry of even thinking about trying to get to stu- you know the winning day one. We wanted to win day one, as as of course you do at Olin with students before they got co-opted into the regular um, math science death march courses that were coming. We wanted to say that look, this we're trying to have this be different. We're going to we're going to show up and this is going to be different. Um, uh, and we think it's important to, if you're trying to, um, if you're trying to change the tone of a of an organization, or you're in the middle of a change transformation, that that or those early experiences are really important, like that. Yeah, well, I think in many ways your experience with the uh, with the sort of one one credit hour course that you were able to start at iFoundry is a great illustration of this sort of power of moments, right? I mean, it's one mm-hmm. one credit out of eighteen or nineteen that students are taking. But I'll bet you anything that those students, two years later, if you ask them, what do you remember from your first semester, they would remember, like, Jamie Kelleher in the middle of the semester saying, or at the end of the semester saying yeah. how cool it was when you, yeah. when they realized that you were actually serious about them doing what they wanted to do. Or the, So that's sort of, um, I think that you did a great job in that course of creating moments. Well, and of course, we did. Well, you know, and actually, though, I've been thinking about the influence of the Heath brothers on uh, some of that early stuff, and I, I don't remember the exact 
year, but it was I think it was ahead of iFoundry, ahead of our coursework in 2009. And I, D- Dan came to um, came to Illinois and gave a talk on on um, made to stick. And uh, and I and uh, a lot of the language in iFoundry changed almost immediately. I I. I I was always pretty good at juxtaposing unusual things in my talks, but it felt like the book gave me permission to, um, you know, generate and use sticky language like things like the math science death march and 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 expressions, both positive and negatively emotionally charged terms that got people's uh, attention and sort of stop um, stop things from being ordinary comment. Yeah, I think that the, the I mean. You know, Dan mentioned sort of that the Power of Moments was perhaps his uh, his favorite book, but I've got to say I I love Made to Stick in part because I find that the sort of tools of of sticky language are ones that you just have the opportunity to to pull out every day, and they and they make so much difference. I mean, whether it's sort of the labeling of a program as passionate pursuits, so that yep. that sort of you know instantiates this sort of key idea that we want students to pursue the things that they're passionate about or the, the ways that we sort of talk about um, or don't talk about things in education, I, I find that that sort of framework for language that is, um, that is sticky to be a really, a really useful one. Well, and it's, and it's, and it's that language and you're talking about culture. If, you know, so you're up, you're in, you're in the middle of an exi- no matter where you are, uh, you're in the middle of an existing culture. And, and if you're trying to change it, it's really, really hard. And Ed, Ed, when Ed Shine was on the show a while back, he warned about you know you can't sort of willy nilly change culture, but you can you can change uh, key artifacts of the culture, and the key way into that is some of the sticky languages that that kind of both points a new direction with some signposts, but also um, challenges some of the old ways uh, in a pungent kind of way. Yeah, I think one of my one of my favorite examples of that is is language around experimentation. Like when you talk about trying to to change things in in education, you know, it's so hard to get get people and particularly faculty members to say, okay, we'll we'll try something different. And one of the sort of nice sticky bits of language that I've seen used, you know, both at Harvard and we also have adopted it at Olin, is this sort of idea of doing educational experiments. Right, that when you're doing something new, you're yeah. not actually saying we're going to throw away the old thing. You're saying, listen, we're we're scientists here, we're engineers here, and scientists and engineers experiment. And it's pretty hard to deny someone the right to experiment, um, but it also sort of creates a, a sort of space where if you're doing an experiment, hey, if it doesn't work, that's okay, you learn something. So I think that that sort of idea of what stories do you tell and what language do you use is, is connects really well with Shine's, Shine's work and I think is, is a pretty key tool for when we talk about trying to, to shift things. Well, and the language of experiments recalls, uh, you know, so and sometimes there are multiple terms around these things that are important to do that we're not doing, like uh, so uh, Sarasvati's term effectuation or or Peter Sims' term little bets uh, or the National Instruments uses this term that uh, the Heath brothers mentioned in um, – in their book, decisive about ooching, that uh, doing you know do, you know so how do we get to doing some little experiment that helps us understand whether we should do more or less of this this new thing that we're not currently doing, and it just seems like that um, 
as, as we're actually talking about it at two different levels here. We're talking about it as content and the essence of change, but we're also talking about how we talk about it as, as memorable and uh, little experiments gives engineers and scientists permission. Um, little bets and an effectuation maybe give other other populations um, permission or suggest suggest how to do it. I think that's one of the things that's nice about sticky language is that it either causes curiosity or it, it helps uh, it helps pave the pave the path for the thing that you're trying to do. Yeah, and I think I mean it's also sort of a it's almost a uh, a tool that you're obliged to use because so much sticky language already exists that's that's counter to what we might want to uh, what we might want to achieve, right? When we talk about you know, sort of making sure that the basics are are delivered, or you know, the the sort of teaching load. These you know pieces of language that really instantiate some of the things that that maybe we don't want to be true about education. You sort of there's I think there's a certain need to fight fire with fire on that. Well, and and you know that's an interesting point too. I've I'm working with um, a, a client actually right now, and we've talked a lot about sticky language, and, and yet they, uh, and I, and their hearts are in the right place, they're doing many of, many cool things in their uh, curricular change program, and, and uh, um, anyways, there's a, there's a lot of good stuff going on, but one of the, one of the troubles they have is actually talking about their stuff differently, the sort of mm-hmm. so this the, I thought the breaking the script is a nice way to say it. I and I, I never had. I don't know if it's because of my uh, problems with authority or what, but it, it, I never had trouble breaking the script. In fact, I took a certain delight in creating language that made certain people cringe, yep. but also kind of led the way for other people to do the right thing. So I, I guess I have you ever seen this where people shied away from actually calling calling something really cool something uh, using language about it that was really cool or pungent. Yeah, I think that I think there are two parts to that. One part is the extent to which I think so much of language is is sort of uncon- is sort of subconscious, right? Mm. So for example, um talking about what the teaching load is, right? Like everyone does that and no one actually says, "Whoa, wait a minute, that suggests teaching is a load and we never talk about research load," right? So there's this sort of unconscious use of language that I think, you know, that instantiates various sorts of implicit assumptions that we have that we've never articulated. But then I think on top of that, there's not just the, the, the fact that it instantiates these sort of unconscious things. There also is the sort of fear, I think, that's associated yeah. with, with making a statement that actually explicitly denies some, you know, existing um, standard way of doing things. Right. So as soon as you you stop, say, talking about research as being one of the things that your institution do, does, that makes people very uncomfortable. If you talk about you know doing things that cause external impact as opposed to doing research, everyone says, oh, but does that mean you don't do research? And what if we if we don't do research, what does that mean? And the answer is no. That doesn't mean we don't do research. It means we can also do other things. And but the but the fear factor, I think, is not um not insubstantial. No, I think, and I agree. I think um, um, fear. I think there's a sense too, you know, and and depending on where it's coming from, uh, people who get uh, sometimes people get chosen to be in positions of administration are um, are trying to please many different p- 
people and the if people raise their vo- faculty members raise their voices uh, it can become uh, uncomfortable or even uh, job threatening and so the the fears can be substantial um, but it seems to me that's uh, if you're doing this kind of serious change that that uh, well, I remember you know we gave a uh, an ASWE or was it no or FIE workshop on uh, a, a war of, of of words, and it really is at first it is a war of words. It's sort of uh, what what language is going to sort of dominate the the future culture, and uh, if the if your words aren't sticky or memorable, if you sort of use uh, ordinary terms. You've already lost. On the other hand, uh, I remember, you know, again going back to the iFoundry experience. We everyone made fun of the lowercase i, but we had i teams and i chairs and iFoundry and i i community and i this and i that, and everyone made fun of it. But everyone started using that language, and once people use your your terms, whatever they are, you're winning. You're you're getting mindshare, and and uh, and and the culture is starting to it it you know, it's a big battleship, but it's starting to it's starting to turn. Yeah, well, I think I mean one of the tough things about about choosing language like that is the extent to which it sort of requires you to be vulnerable, right? It requires you to actually put out there what you what you really think, as opposed to sort of trying to say something that will make everyone happy. Well, and 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 I think you know that's um, you know, I think the um, this part about vulner- vulnerability and authenticity and courage is is central to these things, and I think you know those you know some of the things that we've done together and. Um, done done with others have have been all along those lines. You know, we've been talking a lot about um, made to stick, which I, I agree um, has had a big influence on me. But I think um, uh, the other uh, the other book that's had a huge um, impact on the way I think about uh, change at an organizational level is uh, Switch. Uh, how do you you know how do you think about Switch? Yeah, I think Switch is a really, I, I find I use that framework a lot too. And part of the, I think part of the reason I use that framework a lot is the extent, particularly I think in the academic space, um, you know, within that framework, there's this sort of idea of the elephant rider in the path, right? There's sort of the intellectual component of what it is that we need to change and why we need to change it. There's the emotional component of it. And then there's the sort of process component. What, how do you make it easy to take a step towards, um, towards affecting that change? And I guess I find it useful in part because I think as academics, we tend to talk a lot about the ideas, and we don't tend to acknowledge the uh, the emotional components of things, of what we're afraid of or what, yep. you know, um, and we also don't think very much about the, the sorts of steps that we can take. So one like one way that, that I've sort of consciously been trying to use that at, at Olin has been in a project around trying to shift some of the, the ways we think about teaching um, analysis to, to students. Analysis sort of broadly framed in it, but in a technical space. And so we yep. created this experiment around that called the quantitative engineering analysis experiment. But we did a ton of stuff that was around sort of branding that and sort of making it super visible what we were doing and getting students excited about it and, and sort of showing it, right, which was all sort of emotional moves. Yep. And also a lot of stuff around try, around sort of designing a teaching team that would basically provide faculty who were uncomfortable with it a way to sort of gradually come up to speed on what we were trying to do and become part of that mm. team as opposed to seeing it as an impossible thing to do. And yep. certainly we had intellectual arguments for it too, but if we hadn't dealt with both that sort of path component and that sort of emotional component, I think we would have probably ended up doing what 
a lot of us do around this stuff, which is to do a lot of talking without very much trying. Well, that's uh, that's really um, an interesting story of uh, transition, and and how's how's that their empirical results from from that effort? Uh, well, I mean, so far it, it's a it's yeah. a three year long experiment, and we're yep. just completing the second year of the three year experiment. Um, yep. I think it's it's gone. It, certainly, when I look at student responses to it, they're they're extremely positive, and I think from a, we've had at this point, I think probably twelve or so different faculty members who've been part of the teaching team at one point or another. So we've yep. got pretty deep penetration into the into the faculty. So I'm I'm optimistic that it will lead to some kinds of changes. What whether it will actually become the thing we do, I doubt. I doubt it will become exactly the thing we do because it was designed as an experiment. But I think it'll change what we do. So I'm I'm pretty optimistic about it. Nice, nice, and and um, actually, uh, you mentioned uh, your work in uh, Vietnam. Any uh, in, in what ways have the Heath brothers um, modified, changed, influenced your approach uh, to that work? Oh boy, that they, I'd, <laughs> I mean, I sort of feel like they're an instruction manual for some of this stuff. So uh, everything from how do we. How do we think about advertising to faculty, uh, for faculty and for students, to how do we think about interviewing? Like one of the things that we've been experimenting um, with, the, with that project, and we're also experimenting with it all, and is, is re, rethinking the experience of the faculty interview, and how do you actually create that in a way where you're both conveying the things that you culturally want to convey and um, measuring the things that you actually want to measure? Because if you actually step back and think about the way we interview faculty, like it is so misaligned with the kinds of things that you and I have talked about as being important. So we've been sort of experimenting with that. And so the sort of power of moments fits into that. Um, the, the sort of switch stuff fits into that. The made to stick stuff fits into that. So it's, I don't know. It's a, I'd say there's a, there's a lot that we could take apart on that. Nice. We've just got about a, a minute or, or so left. Uh, you know, one other, as we kind of think about the, the, um, the Heath brothers' contributions and in the educational space. What else uh, comes comes to your mind that we should talk about? Well, I've got to say the thing that I'm still sitting in from talking to Dan is this um, idea of focusing more on the design of individual moments within an yep. experience as opposed to designing the journey. Which is to say that I think when I think about educational design, I often think about it as journey. You know, what's the user journey? How? What are the sort of key touch points along the way, but I think his, his, the work that, that Dan and Chip have, has, have sort of presented in, that, in the book um, suggests to me maybe it, it's worth thinking a little harder about some of those peaks and valleys and asking what, what can you do to, to yeah. make the most of those um, as opposed to thinking about the entire trajectory quite as much. Well, we're we're at the end of the end of the show, and if people, Mark, if people want to contact you or kind of find out what you're doing uh, at Olin or um, and you're consulting and speaking, how can they get get in touch with you? Uh, they can reach me at Olin at mark.somerville at olin.edu or on the Olin webpage at www.olin.edu. Thanks for being on the show again. It was great. My pleasure. Been listening to uh, Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Special thanks to uh, Dan Heath and Mark Somerville. Help transform higher education. Help unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at BigBeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. 
Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.